This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Bernardo Batislaso for New Books Network. And as our guest today, we have James Besson, an economist and technologist who serves as executive director of the Technology and Policy Research Initiative at Boston University School of Law. He has also been a successful innovator and CEO of a software company. Jim, uh, James Besson studies uh, the major economic impacts of technology on society, writing academic papers, magazine articles, and books. You can find a link to his uh, profile in the New York Times in the show notes. His latest book, The New Goliath, argues that um, major firms' investments in proprietary tech software systems have allowed them to increase their dominance of industries, slowing aggregate innovation and raising income inequality. Earlier work with Michael Maurer on patents identified the social cost of poorly defined in uh, property rights. And this book was called Patent Failure by Princeton University Press, published in 2008. And as well as work on automation, such as learning by doing uh, Yale University Press in 2015, both historical and current, uh, or using both historical and uh, current information to provide a distinct analysis of the effects of employment, skills, and wage inequality. Besson's work has been widely cited in the press, as well as by U.S. White House, the Supreme Court, the European Parliament, and the uh, Trade Commission. So, James Besson, thank you very much for being with us, and welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you. Um, as it's usual in our in our uh, interviews, we would first ask you to tell us a little bit about you, although we've, we've read a little bit of a bio, but we would like to hear in your words, who is James Besson and how did you become an academic? Uh, yeah, so I have a very unusual career path. Uh, I studied economics at Harvard, um, but at some point I decided to uh, go out into the real world. Uh, I ended up founding a newspaper and developing what turned out to be one of the first desktop publishing programs, software programs 
This was in the early 1980s. Uh, grew that. It became a successful company. We sold the company. The whole time I was running the software company, though, I was thinking about the economics questions and about how different things seem uh, from what I had learned in the classroom. Uh, very often, the economists, particularly at the time I studied, had a, a very idealistic view about how technology changes things. Um, so there were a series of questions that I wanted to research. Uh, I got back in contact with my college roommate, Eric Maskin, um, who, who had really gotten me interested in economics in the first place and had, has since had a, an illustrious career. He's at Harvard now. He's a Nobel laureate. Um, but he graciously uh, took me in and started working with me. We did some research together. We wrote a paper about software patents, um, and that sort of got me launched into uh, doing academic work. Uh, I wanted to research these questions, and that's what I've done. Thank you. And But then it is also strikes me as an economist, how did you end up in a law department? And because you right. Seem to good, be... good, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of my early work, because of the paper with Maskin, uh, was about patents. Um I teamed up with Mike Moyer at the at the law school and and others, and we had a whole series of papers about patents. I think economists were just, I, I think they, they, they were sort of a new generation of economists who had a very idealistic view of patents and how well they worked. Older economists like Mike Scherer uh, were rather more skeptical about patents. But particularly with coming from the software industry, there's been a lot of skepticism about the role of patents because, you know, here's this industry which became very innovative, largely without patents. And we then had patents introduced in the mid 90s uh, in, in large form and large numbers. And the result is certainly mixed. Uh, you know, part of this has spawned patent trolls and a lot of, uh, you know, anti things that work against innovation. Um, so there was a lot of room to sort of explore where patents work well, where they don't work so well, what policies happen. And this this was very policy oriented. Um, it, it made sense to be in a law school, but it, it, it was sort of happenstance. It's uh, We built on that. And so the organization I now run looks at, continues to study patents and IP, intellectual, intellectual property, both from an economic point of view and a legal uh, scholarship point of view. Uh, but we also look at a couple other big questions. Uh, one is the impact of technology on the workforce, things like automation. Is AI going to take over all our jobs and things like that? Uh, the other is industry dynamism, um, which is what this book is really related to. Uh, how what, does technology affect industry dynamism and how much is industry dynamism important for innovation? And then the fourth area uh, is access to medicines and medical treatments. Right. Uh, yes, very, yeah, it seems more economics than law in a way, but then it depends how you look at it and and, and the rights that, that people would, would give uh, and how they, they manage those, those rights. So, um, let me let me ask you a question while thinking of early career researchers, and and that is how do you secure your your first uh, book uh, contract uh, as you had already 
published with with uh, you know good prestigious academic publishers such as Princeton and Princeton and, and and Yale. So one would understand that this recent contract is because you already had experience working with Yale University Press. But right. how how you know if, if you're talking to an early career researcher, how or what advice will you give them in how to go and and secure that first uh, book uh, contract? Right. So I, it it more came to me than me coming to it. Um, the I, I think the key thing was probably I had been publishing a, lot, a number of working papers that seemed to be of interest. There was a lot of controversy about patents at the time, um, and it caught the attention of Tim Sullivan, who was an editor at Princeton. He's now moved on to other things, but uh, he. You know, he started uh, started talking to me. I think well before we actually had a specific idea for a book, but he sort of nurtured the contact. And um, I think many of the better editors will be out there looking for people who are writing things that may have some broader appeal than the specific economic niche they're working in. Um, and you know, they'll, they'll cultivate those relationships, and eventually, there's an opportunity for a book there. Thank you for that. Um, I'm, I'm sure it will be helpful. Um, now, going back to, to New Goliaths, what sort of story did you want it to tell? Well, the, the book started, maybe I'll, I'll answer a slightly different question. So the, the book started about five years ago when I, I started looking at uh, whether software might be related to the growing concentration of industries, the growing, you know, the dominance of large firms within their industries. Uh, there had been a, a flurry of some research and some popular press about uh, how uh, industries were becoming more dominated. Much of this was not done within the strict IO competition policy framework, but was looking more generally. Um, I, I knew on the one hand that there was good evidence that uh, firms were able to use software systems to increase their sales. And we also know there's a great inequality in how much firms invest in software. Uh, you know, there's some that invest billions, most invest zero or close to it. Um, so, you know, I, I knew there had to be some effect uh, of software on industry concentration because it was, it was happening in the time period that uh, we saw the, the data for concentration increasing. Um, so I, I looked, I found a relationship. I used some instrumental variables and the relationship seemed to be A, plausibly causal, uh, and B, it was of a magnitude large enough to explain much, if not most, of the, the growth in industry dominance. So this started me thinking and it brought up um, something that I've been aware of since my years in business, which uh, when, when we were doing desktop publishing systems for large retailers or catalogs, uh, it was very clear that these firms, even back in the eighties, were using data to try to target what they were selling to different people. Um, we built a system for the A and P, uh, supermarket chain, uh, which allowed them to tailor the circular ads, uh, for different neighborhoods so that they would have different things on sale in one neighborhood of Atlanta and then from another neighbor, you know, and there were maybe two dozen or, or so 
different circulars going on, all targeting, uh, you know, the 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 ads and the and the special sale items. Um, so I, I wrote about that at the time I, in the Harvard Business Review. It was a pretty interesting development. It, people tied it to mass customization and, you know, the, this perennial need to meet customers' individual or idiosyncratic needs. Um, and, you know, I was well aware that it had been going on for some time. But when I started, th- th- this ended up sort of being the second element that gelled my perspective of, of what was going on. Because when, when I, you know, I... I saw this relationship between software and industry concentration. And I said, well, what's going on here? Why, why is this happening? And the, when I started looking into case studies, the common thread I saw is that these firms are building these very large, very complex data intensive uh, systems to enable them to manage complexity so as to better meet idiosyncratic consumer needs. So it may be, uh, you know, automobiles or software programs that have many, many features. It may be a huge increase in product variety. So, you know, back in 1970, there were five sports shoes on the market, and now there's something like 3,000. You know, so the nature of competition is changing in a way. um, And these firms are using software to manage uh, these complex systems. So it's things like Walmart, has these logistics, it's able to keep, to, it's able to, number one, stock many more items in their stores and also stock them very efficiently, very, you know, very quick logistics, very, very able to respond uh, very quickly to changes in consumer demand. Uh, and at the same time, they build an organization around that. So it's not, uh, traditionally retailers would, would have buyers who would make centralized purchasing decisions and that would be it through the, for the entire chain. Here they open things up so that store managers or even their suppliers uh, could initiate reorders of goods that send you know were selling rapidly to, to keep things well stocked on the shelves that were hot items. And so you have people selling firms selling more variety, different variety, more features, and all of this is becomes very complex. But software is very good at managing complexity. So that that seemed to be the common theme, and 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 those two elements together is sort of what um, created the idea of the book. So I, I I followed a line of research. We're still following that line of research. I think there's a lot more uh, you know fertile ground to 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 explore here, uh, but that's that's sort of the genesis. Exactly, and one of the things that I found very interesting in the book is how you also make this effort to make people think it's not only about software on the supply side and, and, and diminishing costs, but on the demand side and what impact that, that has. And when you were talking about it just, just now, it reminded me um, of, of, of an effect or part of the effect that this has uh, that, that I'm not sure if you mentioned it, which is that it makes search costs for consumers much more expensive and and that's a big issue, especially well for for a number of industries, but certainly for 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 uh, financial services, which is my my kind of uh, more where I'm inclined. Because then you know regulators, uh, which are thinking that that consumers are going to be able to go and search for the best alternative, lose those incentives. They they it, you know searching for 
when, when you have 500 mortgage contracts, it's impossible for, for, for an individual to go and, and evaluate which is the best alternative for, for him, her, or, or their, their, their um, you know, family unit. And, 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 and it has you know, very important implications, not only for the individuals, uh, but also for, for regulation and, and who do they protect and how do they protect? Because the reaction for the consumer, and that was something that, um, yeah, when I did a little bit of work for the um, um, uh, for for the UK government some time ago, was that the, the consumer's reaction is, I'm going to choose whatever it's it's available, whatever I perceive to be the first option, because I know that I'm going to be saved. Eventually, the government government is going to come in and and save me, and so it creates all of these perverse incentives. Uh, for for this, but but let let, let me not uh, unpack your your story uh, for you. No, um, no, 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 no. Actually, I, I think that's a really interesting example, and I I want to draw two other things out of it, if you don't mind. Uh, th- this is actually one of the 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 areas that we're exploring a little more uh, deeply now that the book is out. But one is uh, the consumers may not even you know you you talk about the mortgages or whatever. They may not even understand what all these different features are in in the mortgages. Uh, that, that so it makes it even worse. But second, um, this introduces it, it's not only that search is costly; it's that there are search frictions, it, which it changes the dynamics of competition, so that incumbents have uh, an inherent advantage. If I have a mortgage from one company, it seems to work. I stick with it. Somebody may come along, an innovator with a much better idea a much you know, better risk profile for me, a much lower interest rate, and I'm not going to switch to them because I'm just too confused by the whole damn thing. So that, that's part of what, what goes on here. Uh, it slows things, it slows, it slows the growth of innovators down. And that, that was one of the findings I do talk about in the book. So I'm, I'm sorry, I, I interrupted your question. <laughs> No, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's it's it, it is. It was it was coming back to, to to that. But let's take um, just a, a slight step backwards and try to to take your views in in two or, or three important things uh, that you do um, touch on. And and one of them is your view on the so-called uh, solo paradox. And for those who are not familiar with it, is this statement by Robert Solo, who famously during his uh, Nobel Prize uh, speech um, said something along the lines that com- the computer age was everywhere except in the producti- productivity statistics. So either the productivity statistics were wrong or the computer age was not having the impact that everybody kind of saw. And that created a, a, a flurry of, of research and, and discussion around it. So, so how would this work that you're coming back with would address this um, par- apparent paradox. Right. So, I mean, I, I think the history of the solar paradox is that shortly after he made that statement, uh, productivity started going up, productivity growth went up for a, a decade or so, and it was strongly tied to computers. But I think there's, it, it may be bro- helpful to sort of broaden the view. It wasn't just that this new game, you know, these, the idea that these low-cost computers would boost productivity, but it was sort of they were going to democratize innovation. They made it possible for lots of small firms to buy a PC, personal computer, 
uh, cheap software on it that was comparable to what the mainframes were running, and they could do tremendous things. So in, in my business, uh, desktop publishing, we, we found all sorts of uh, new publishers came along because they could now produce their pages much more cost effectively. And so you saw the number of weekly newspapers go up and you saw the number of magazines go up for a while until the internet came along. Um, uh, and, and you saw this in a whole bunch of different areas where, uh, you know, retail stores could get barcoding and they, they actually, smaller chains tended to pioneer this technology rather than the big chains. They could actually, you know, have this technology at their fingertips. What's happened is the role of computers and the role of software has flipped things. So now uh, with these large systems, it becomes almost impossible for a small retailer to compete against Walmart. It's very difficult. And you see lots of small retailers going out of business, even ones that are very innovative in their niche markets or whatever. It just becomes very difficult if you're you know, just down the street from a store that carries 100,000 different items at low prices. Um, so it's, on the one hand, it's flipped things around in terms of making, you know, software rather than disrupting the incumbents, which it was doing early on, it's now helping the incumbents suppress disruption. And that has impacts on productivity. So the key impact, um, I think one of the, everybody worries about the, you know, the, sort of the entry of startups. And it, it turns out that there, we're creating just about as many startups today as, as we did 20 years ago. But the difference is the startups are growing much more slowly. And that, that slow growth is in many industries related to these dominant systems that make it difficult for smaller firms to grow. So uh, researchers at the census have tied the slower growth of, of startups, innovative startups, as a key cause of the the slowdown in productivity growth, um, so that that's what's one of the key concerns of the book is that when you have that happening, it's almost the reverse of the solo paradox. Computers are everywhere, and they're having a negative effect on aggregate productivity growth. Some firms are doing very well with them, but most firms simply cannot access the technology, and that that creates a big and important difference. Exactly, and and in that response, you've you've basically defined what you understand by complexity in this context and you have briefly explained you know why disruptive innovation in a way is, is a myth because we, we don't see any any of that and and also addressed um this you or provided an explanation which is what is also driving the book as as this reduction in productivity in in the u.s economy now would that be something that we would also expect to see in other in other countries, a reduction in productivity tied to this complexity in IT system? So uh, I believe the OECD researchers have found some similar patterns in other developed countries, um, but where you know digital technology has played a role in the increased dominance of. Um, the major firms, the growing concentration. Um, I'm not sure they've connected it to a, the productivity slowdown in the same way. Uh, there's a series of papers that John Halterwanger and co-authors 
in for the using U.S. Census data that I have established that component very well. Uh, but I, I, I'm I, I'm not aware of the same thing being established in European countries. There may be some research there that I don't know. Partly the question was was driven not not only I mean was driven because of you pointing to the use of technology, but at the same time, the U.S. is a major producer of both hardware and and software. Maybe not the manufacturing, which has gone to China, but it is the cradle of of a number of these innovation and, and these uses that are then um, spread spread out. So in the sense of, of other countries being followers in that sense, you know, to, uh, that, that was a little bit where the question was, was going. Yeah. So there's, there's a, there's a study that, that looked at UK firms and found out that U uh, S multinationals were able to use their IT much more effectively in Britain than the British national, um, it, you know, after controlling for all sorts of things. And it, 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 uh, they, I think they attribute it to, to U.S. management methods and, and uh, so skills and understanding about IT, information technology. Okay. Um, so this, the, the book is basically written in a very open language I, uh, you know, for a wide audience. It's, it's very easy to, to, to go through it. Um, Nonetheless, there is an empirical base for it. So, would you like to tell us a little bit of what data did you use and how and how and why you you chose this data? Okay, so the book really draws on a lot of different data and different sources. Some of it we did, but we're also drawing on on the work of lots of other people, which I think either complement or contribute in important ways. So, I wouldn't want to underemphasize that. Um, we used a a variety of data sources um, uh, for various points in the book, but you know, looking at use, using data from the U.S. Census, data from um, uh, uh, um, what am I? The, well, things like CompuStat, you know, the data on, on publicly listed firms. Um, we have data on. Uh, uh, job advertisements. Uh, we're able to use that, help wanted ads, uh, use that to identify important changes in demands for skills and pay. Um, so it's really, you know, a sort of a broad range of different data sources uh, for, for, for various studies. And so there's a, there's a series, I don't know, a half dozen or so different papers, some published, some not. Um, some historical data, even I think we looked at <laughs> at least exactly. going back. I was to, actually sorry. Yeah, go on, go on. No, I was exactly going to ask you. You know, something that I've always picked up from your work is this combination of uh, new sources to sometimes historical to explore difficult things that other statistics would make it. I mean, in in this case, is is. You know how do you measure intangibles and how do you measure software, which is very very hard from from a straightforward statistics perspective. And and you're finding, you know, in a very creative way, these alternative sources, as you said, you know, job adverts or the number of uh, in, in other of your pieces, uh, the number of tellers at the at the 
at the bank branches to to measure the the impact of ATMs and so so would you you know this this combination of historical data and, and econometrics would would you like to care to explore or or this you know, tell us a little bit more about this? Uh, well, I, I yeah, I mean it comes in a couple of different ways and a couple of different flavors. I mean one is I I think when you when you look at historical data sometimes you're challenged to be more creative with what you can extract out of the data. So that's where we come up with some of the ideas of, you know, we, we could measure uh, software developer at, at a firm by looking at the number of software developers it hires or the number of software developers it's advertising to hire. Um, but the, I think the other thing is uh, w one of the best uses of, of history is to sort of under, help us understand the bigger picture in a way. So th this is one of the themes, I think, that the um, we're looking at, at a change in the relationship between technology and society. Most of the time we have technology coming along and what does it do? It, it improves productivity in some way, but it doesn't change fundamental economic relationships. Um, and I, I think many economists are very content with that. But I think you have to recognize that there are times when a new technology or group of technologies does really change things. So one of those occurred in the late 19th century where we had the introduction of a number of technologies where there were big economies of scale, uh, steel and petroleum and sugar manufacturing. And, and uh, this really changed the nature of the economy. Uh, it meant that you had a rise of big firms. Uh, it brought in financial capital to make those big firms even bigger. Think of U.S. Steel. Um, uh, it changed, it, it clearly created, you know, a, a, created the modern antitrust scheme. It created a reaction where people wanted to control these very large and powerful firms. Um, but, it, you know, it was a somewhat different economics, the idea of, of producing things at scale. Uh, and I, I think we're seeing uh a similar change in the relationship because now we're seeing these systems come along that are able to uh address heterogeneous consumer needs in a very different way and like we were talking before it changes the nature of competition it changes the, the nature of how innovation gets done um uh, about how things how innovation and new ideas spread through the economy so w w you know one of the aspects of this this new arrangement is that for a couple reasons, and I can go into them if we want, but uh, the ideas aren't, aren't spreading as rapidly as they have in the past. Uh, I give the example of the, you know, the automatic transmission came along, General Motors developed it, and within 10 years, all of its rivals had automatic transmissions in a variety of different ways, uh, but that happened. Today, we're seeing what uh, some people at the OECD identified as a productivity gap. We're seeing, you know, the, there are some firms that have developed this very productive technology, but the gap between them and most of the other firms has been growing over the last 20 years, uh, something that's, that's new. And uh, it's a sign that uh, technology isn't diffusing as fast as it did in the past. If I may, um, I don't know if I'm making a, a, a correct reinterpretation of what you're saying, but in a way, 
what you're describing is is this move from an economy where we saw um, economies of scale that is um, constant reduction of of average cost of production um, being something that was odd and really textbooks would push it to some you know something that happened in utilities and 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 that was not the main discussion whereas now with with software and and with software or, or computer technology being central to production economies of scale are are central to to most industries and to production in general and and therefore you know we 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 need to to question if we have the right tools to be able to deal with this conceptually as, as economists. And, and it's perhaps something that I'm borrowing from the work of, of Diane Doyle, who has also written on the limits of, of current regulation um, and, 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 the, and whether economic thinking is suited for this new industry environment and, and whether, you know, large you know whether regulation is able to deal with and, and, and antitrust as you have mentioned with these large software intensive companies and it's something that you also address in 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 the book so would you give us a little bit of more of your your, your thought on on this yeah so one is I, I I want to preface this by saying I, I don't think I know all the answers, but absolutely I think we're dealing with a world that's that's different and regulation is different. So these are the there is a scale economy to software of a sort, but it's a different scale economy than an electric plant. You know the electric plant is a is a minimum efficient size. Uh, it that meant that in smaller markets one plant would was, was a natural monopoly. The, the same thing isn't going on here. There's no minimum efficient size in, in terms of these software systems. What these systems do is, in a sense, they are reducing diseconomies of scope. So it's a, it's, a, it's a different problem. From a regulatory perspective, I think the key is... Uh, the, the the problems that I identify related to these systems. First, I should I premise and say these systems are great. They're a wonderful benefit. They they allow con- us as consumers to receive a much better selection of goods that we want to to have goods that are very well tailored to our needs. Um, the difficulties arise because there's only a few companies that have this technology, and they become very dominant and and. Ideally, we want to see the technology spread. It's the same story with with any technology, but like I was saying, the the diffusion of the technology is much slower today. Um, so, we want to think about ways that, uh, in in terms of looking at regulation and policy, we want to think about ways to encourage firms to open up in some way to to share pieces of their technology, perhaps for a fee. Uh, and we have some examples of companies that are doing that on their own. Um, so Amazon uh, is a, has done this in a number of different areas, but one is the cloud. Uh, in the mid-2000s, Amazon realized they had developed a unique competitive advantage. They could manage you know, their huge website traffic in a very efficient way. It turns out this is a very difficult IT problem to solve. They solved it. They had this tremendous advantage, 
And rather than keep it as a proprietary advantage, they unbundled it. They created Amazon Web Services, the first cloud, uh, so that anybody could, for a fee, tap into their tremendous resources. And it could be a two-person company, or it could be a 200,000-person company, or it could be a two-person company that grows to a 200,000 a person company, uh, you know, is all very scalable, very adaptable. And it's, you know, one, it means that there's tremendous competition now and in some of these areas and some markets that would otherwise not be there. Two, uh, there's some studies showing that there are definite productivity effects for small firms using the cloud. And three, it's been hugely profitable for my Amazon. Uh, of course, now Amazon has rivals. It's got, you know, Microsoft's in there and Google's in there. But, um, you know, it, it, they created the cloud industry by opening things up. Um, similarly, in the past, we've seen government uh, to compel or encourage firms to open up, you know, ma making patent portfolios, uh, licensing them uh, is often a condition of merger. Uh there are cases where uh, the antitrust authorities have uh, used compulsory licensing to, you know, to force companies to license, or they've encouraged them. They encourage AT and T to, or I guess as a part of a consent decree, AT and T was forced to uh, license its semiconductor patents, and that essentially created the semiconductor industry. Um, so th these are tricky policy issues. It's not a clear cut issue because you don't want to, you know, you can very clearly undercut a firm's uh, incentives to innovate in the first place. If you're going to force it to give it away. Uh, on the other hand, uh, in many cases, it appears to be the case that firms themselves uh, don't even appreciate the, the profit potential uh, they could get uh, by opening up in some way or, or the, you know, they, they haven't, there's also this, you know, ex externality that they're not incorporating, that they may be encouraged to incorporate. But it turned out, for instance, with IBM, that IBM uh, was induced by uh, the antitrust authorities to unbundle its software from its hardware. Uh, that turned out to be tremendously profitable for them. That created the modern independent software industry. IBM had looked at it doing it itself and couldn't make up its mind. It basically, it, you know, it was, it, even though this was something that turned out to be hugely profitable for them in the long run, uh, it was hard for them to see. Anyway, so th those are some of the policy issues that I think uh, regulars need to address, but it's going to take us a while to figure out how to do this the right way. I think you've, you've given them their, the, the answer to the next question, which is there, there's no clear or single solution for all industries in all countries in how to address this from a from an antitrust perspective. However, you've, you've just given clear examples where antitrust does work and does bring, you know, things, moves things uh, forward. Um, so so um, let, let me get to um, since we're in this topic um, some people have criticized your book as being uh, a great diagnostic of the problem 
but not being more aggressive in terms of solutions and critical of the software industry. What would you respond to that? Well, for, first off, it's not the software industry per se. It's, you know, this is really across the board. I, one of the things I, I'm at constant pains to uh, emphasize about the book, the problems I see aren't just about big tech. B big tech's mainly a small part of the picture. Th this is, you know, the majority of major industries. We're talking about retail. We're talking about banking. We're talking about insurance. We're talking about pharmacy benefit managers. Um, so it's, it's not just the software industry. But uh, I, I, I would agree and say I don't have all the answers uh, in terms of the right policy. But I, I have, uh, I think I've laid out, by, but, you know, by having a clear diagnosis, uh, I can, can hopefully contribute to an ongoing discussion uh, and, and analysis of what policies will work and which ones don't. Um, a lot of these areas, uh, so w w another aspect of, of openness relates to things like employee mobility. Uh, another very fraught policy area, but there are things like non-compete agreements or trade secrecy, which are important <coughs> and provide positive incentives to firms in some cases, but there's some evidence that the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction, and we're now preventing employees from changing jobs, uh, where by doing so, they would help diffuse technical knowledge that really would be socially beneficial. Um, figuring out the right balance is, is tricky. So um, I, I, I don't have the answers. If I've done a good diagnosis, though, at least we're, we're halfway towards understanding uh, you know, what is, I think, a difficult policy area. Thank you. So there's always things that are left out in when, when putting a, a paper or a book or, or research. Um, so what would be the interesting nuggets that did not make uh, the final draft or, or themes that you, if you would have had the space, you would have included? Yeah, so it's not space that limited me. I think it was uh, just how far the thinking had gone. And, and so there's some areas where we've, we're now pushing further or, or where the data analysis has gone. Uh, so uh, one of the things we're exploring, I mentioned earlier, is understanding how this sort of proliferation of product variety and product choices really affects the nature of interactions with consumers and consumer search uh, and what that means. Um, that's one area we're further exploring. Another is, uh, I, I think there's this great data out there from the census people about how the slowdown in the growth of innovative firms um, is responsible for a significant part of the aggregate slowdown and productivity growth. Uh, we have had done a little research, which I've put in the book, uh, about factors that affect that this, the, the rate of growth of productive firms. Uh, we're seeing a bunch more research coming along that's uh, addressing that. And I think, I think that's going to be one of the key questions um, going forward. Thanks. Well, James Besson, thank you very much for being with us at the New Books Network. For those who are listening, please, uh, if you haven't done so, subscribe to our podcast. And if you're a subscriber, please rank us. Um, you can also follow us in uh, Twitter, in New Books 
uh, at New Books and New Books Network, as well as our sister channel in New Books in Spanish. Again, thank you very much for having us, and look, we look forward to having you again in, with your new book is out. Thank you for having me. <laughs>